You see, my friends, life is a test and life is a trust. And we are the manager. Remember, the central character in every Bible story is me, as well as he. As I've looked at this story, I've realized that I'm looking in a mirror. For am I not the manager that God has given of his resources? My life is on loan to him. My position in this world, the gifts and abilities that I have, they're gifts from God and His grace. And what have I done with them? Wasted them. It is I who should be fired. It is I should be cast aside. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is another player in this story. Jesus Christ, the faithful manager, the faithful son under God's household, over God's household, comes in my stead and lives the life that I should have lived and dies the death that I should have died. That I might be accepted not on my record and my accomplishments but His. So in a strange turn of injustice, I move from being fired to being a son and a daughter. And the Master's assets have all of a sudden become mine. The inheritance of the kingdom of God belongs to me, the unfaithful manager. Why? Because he loves me. And so how shall we live in light of this? Jesus says, choose wisely. Because you can't have both. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. I don't know if you know that Bill Gates has kids. Sometimes, I don't know, it might be nice to be the kid of Bill Gates. Imagine I was working for Microsoft and I ran into this beautiful girl in the office, Jennifer Gates, the son of Bill Gates, who's 20 right now. Imagine I fell in love, this lowly software programmer, with Jennifer Gates, and lo and behold, she loved me back. All of a sudden, I become the heir to Microsoft. My inheritance is sure, but I just used to show up to work to work for the man. Now it's different. He's my father. And guess what? Kingdom business, Microsoft business, is my business. But Microsoft is just software. But the kingdom is the glory of God. If this is my father's world, it means it's mine. In the sense of the inheritance, the blessing of God, I must be about my father's business. And so how shall we impact the world? You know, we're all made differently. You may be an introvert. You may enjoy being alone. You may be an extrovert. You may be a communicator. You may be a servant. You may be running a company. 
you may be a stay-at-home parent. It's about utilizing your, ins- your uh, resources to show glory to God. To influence the world for Christ. And it's not about numbers. It's about the love behind them. No such thing as great things. Isn't that what Mother Teresa said? Just little things done with great love. So friends, we must refocus our focus. We must repurpose our resources. Your date book. Your money. You know, sooner or later, we're going to either build one of these things or get kicked out of one of these, of this place. I don't know what the future holds. But at some point, my hope for why I'm here is that save for Christ coming back when I'm long gone, the gospel will continue to be preached here and people will come to faith because of what you and what I did together. That when we get to heaven, there will be a look of knowing on that of angels who will smile because we live lives of worship and praise and glory. It's our influence now. Refocus. Be shrewd. Finally grow up. Verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. My kids are growing up. Will just started driving. He's 16. I've been through this once before. But it's very interesting with each kid. They're each different, right? You don't give them the keys to the car and tell them to drive to Newport News right away. Not a good idea during rush hour. No, you just give them a little bit of line. Either to hang themselves with or to show I can prove. I can, I can use this. But you see, the ultimate goal is not to keep them here because I know that in the end I can't. The clock is ticking, so to speak. No, it's to play out the line properly and slowly. So when it's time for him and Daniel and Maria to fly, I have confidence they're ready. See, this life is a test and it's a trust. And this is the way it works. Each of us have talents. And Jesus has given us a little bit of line. The goal is for us to grow up into maturity. It's not a question necessarily of where I am now. It's a question of where am I next year and the year after that. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. But year after year, I have to examine the question, am I becoming more shrewd, more focused, more faithful, You may be saying, looking back upon your Christian life, saying, I've wasted it. Here I am, I'm still a baby Christian, even though I've been a Christian for so long. But the beauty is the Lord continues to work with us right now. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. But friends, we must prove faithful. If you continue to have the same issues and problems in your life, 
you may have to ask the question, is it because the rope that he's giving me I continue to hang myself with? Or am I learning the lessons? Insanity is surely continuing to do the exact same things and receive different results. The growth comes from strain. One final illustration. Daniel and I were lifting recently. I'm sure you can tell with this bulky robe that I'm wearing. And Daniel had these smaller weights and I said, no, no, no. If you want to build brute strength, this is the way it works. You need to lift enough weight that by about eight repetitions, you're done. And the way you gain strength is on that eighth repetition, the last one, your muscles actually tear. They micro-tear. Okay? Not terrible tear, but they micro-tear. And if you rest for the next couple of days, your body will rebuild, but it will send a message, we have to rebuild stronger and denser because if he does this again, we can't continue to take this. The Christian life is a life of strain and stretch. Stepping out in faith. Tell you the truth, I was scared to death to talk to my tennis partner yesterday. I've been a Christian for I don't know. I even get to wear one of these cool robes. But it's there in that space of uncertainty. When we walk in the ways of the kingdom, when we step out in faith, and put our heart in our hand and give it to Jesus Christ that he meets us and strengthens us. The goal of this church is to inspire you, to equip you. If you need discipleship, my phone is always open for you. Pick it up and call me. If you need to learn, you need to grow, we have adult education. Our elders are here for you. I never wanted to be said, I wanted to grow, I just didn't know how. That's off the table. But the decision is yours. You may have Jesus Christ, but does Jesus Christ have you? Be shrewd. Refocus. Grow up. Live in this present reality, immersed in eternity, and your life will start to take on a supernatural character that can only be attributed to the grace of God. That is our promise, that is our blessing, that is our goal. And nothing short can satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, we confess so often we are as shrewd as doves and innocent as serpents. Lord, help us to be wise. If anyone, Lord, should be living purposefully, holy, obedient, glorious lives, it should be us. Because we are certain of the future and our inheritance is certain. 
Wake up, O oh sleeper. Help us, Lord, to arouse, arouse from our stupor. Lord, and live the lives that are worthy of the calling that you've given us, of the inheritance you have bestowed upon us. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hello? Yes. It's now time for our uh, offering. Uh, if you're a guest here, and we've got several guests, don't feel compelled in any way to uh, make an offering unless the Lord... We're going to stop there. We're going to preach on that second part uh, next week. Uh, the word of the Lord. Well, if you were to take a poll and ask people what was their favorite parable, you would probably get, I would assume, the prodigal son. That seems to me to be entrenched, uh, you know, as the best parable all the things that it brings out. But if you were to ask people what is the worst parable, you might receive this one. This parable doesn't make any sense on the surface. I call this the Bernie Madoff parable. Remember old Bernie who did the Ponzi scheme up in New York, you know? He's taken money from one, he's given it to the other, he's living high on the hog. And it would seem that Jesus is commending people like Bernie Madoff for their shrewdness. And so this parable irritates us in some way. The truth of the matter is parables are meant to irritate. They're like a grain of sand that gets into our shell, so to speak, and rubs us in the wrong way. And so we're not quite sure what to do with the parable of the dishonest manager. So we kind of shelve it or set it aside. But we can't do that, obviously. All scripture is God-breathed. There's a reason Jesus has it here. Jesus is teaching us an important truth, a truth that maybe we don't understand as Christians. And that is that a Christian, to be a Christian, a Christian should be shrewd. We think of the word shrewd in its negative connotation, but the definition of shrewd is simply this having or showing sharp powers of judgment, being astute. It's not negative or positive. Jesus tells us to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. But it would seem often as Christians that we are as shrewd as doves and innocent as serpents. It would seem that we're as shrewd as doves and innocent as serpents. Oh well, let's keep going. The point being that often as Christians we live ignorantly. Rather the people of the world are wiser in the way they live than we are in the way we live in our context. And so this passage needs to challenge us. It needs to irritate us, to examine us, uh, to examine us so that we can answer the question, how are we living? Are we living with sharp powers of judgment? and being astute in understanding how we are to live. There are three points I want to touch on in this sermon. Number one, what does it mean to be a shrewd Christian? What does it mean to be shrewd as a Christian? Number two, a shrewd Christian refocuses his or her ambition, a different way of living. Finally, number three, to be a shrewd Christian, we need to grow up in our faith. I couldn't come up with a neat way to make them all rhyme, so I just gave them to you. There you go. Let's begin with number one. What is a shrewd Christian? What does that mean? 
Well, we see in verse 1, Jesus speaking to the disciples, talking about this manager, in which charges are brought against him because this man is wasting his possessions. Now, it was a big deal to be a manager. There wasn't a whole lot of assets to be handled by anybody. Sometimes these people who were actually the managers of wealthy people's assets actually sold themselves into bond servants so they were able to do so because it was a great honor and a privilege. Obviously, they would be cared for. It was a position of responsibility. So it was a, it was a high position. But there's a problem here. This man, this manager in this high responsibility and position is a fraud. He's a Bernie Madoff. He's not uh, taking care of the master's possessions. He's wasting them, says the Bible. And so the master comes to him. What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Okay, the, man, the, the, the owner is wise and shrewd himself and sees this is my hard-earned money that is going out the door. I want you to write up an account of what is outstanding. In other words, give me the papers so I know. And your job is over. Well, this manager says to himself, uh-oh, the gig is up, so to speak. The Ponzi scheme is over. What shall I do? Since my man master is taking the management away, okay, he'll be uh, blacklisted from anyone. He can't do this position anymore. He's been shown to be unfaithful. I'm not strong enough to dig. He's a white-collar guy. He doesn't, you know, he's not willing to either lower himself or physically he can't. And I'm ashamed to beg. See, this man understands what is to come, what is his future. He's taking a little bit of an analysis. Instead of, of the manager's assets, he's analyzing his own assets, his own portfolio of investments, if you will. I have decided what to do, he says, so that when I am removed from management, which is a certainty, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said, how much do you owe? First guy owes 100 measures of oil. Sit down, take it 50. 50% 50 reduction, by the way. Pretty good day for that guy who owed 100 measures of oil. And then he says to another, how much do you owe? Person owes 100 measures of wheat. Sit down, take your bill, and write 80. 20% reduction there. By the way, these are two examples of what this man did. I'm not sure it's the only thing that he did. In fact, it says that he summoned his debtors. There may be more and more. This guy is, if you will, spreading out his portfolio because he understands the times. And in uh, the ancient Near East, um, they lived in what is called a culture of reciprocation. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. I give you a gift, you give me a gift. It's built into the culture. It's an ought, not a maybe. The master, when he heard this, by the way, this is just these two, this, these two people right here is about 20 months, 20 months of, of wages. Just right there. With this man with his pencil, erases it. And so when we hear the manager hears of this, should not the manager take this man and throw him into prison? Right? We see that in other parables. He should be furious. He should be upset. 
but rather he commends the dishonest manager. Imagine if you worked for a company and the boss calls you in. Oh, I see you gave away 50% of our inventory. That was fantastic. What a great idea. Tell me about this other account. You're fantastic. No, he commends the manager for his shrewdness. See, this, manager, this owner is in a very difficult situation. See, the, the manager has put him in a, what's called a double bind. Because guess what? He's acting. Okay, I'm sure he didn't say, I'm going to, you know, go ahead and do this because of what's going on. Guess what? No. He's just functioning as the manager. So this landowner right now in the town is being commended as a gracious and kind owner. Look at how he's slashing the prices and what's owed for all these people. I mean, I wonder if the landowner even said, I, I don't even think I can get rid of this guy. Because if I do, my name is Mud. He's been wise. You see, this manager is being a faithful manager of himself. He understood the shrinking time window and used his position now to affect what was going to happen then. See, what he was going to do now was intimately related to his future destiny. And so he seized the opportunity with boldness. The landowner did not say, go settle accounts with everyone. No, in fact, it said for him to turn in his account. He should have been in his office writing this up, but he slipped out the back door. He seized the opportunity, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, you need to hear this. Who is Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to his disciples. He's talking to believers. He's talking to them, and through them, he's talking to this. And he makes this split, the sons of this world, namely people like this manager, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, with their world, than people like you, the sons of light. You see, worldly people employ what they possess in light of what they think is their destiny. And all too often, Christians don't. That is to say that the people who live for this world handle this world much better, says Jesus, than you who live for my world. And so what Jesus is saying is, you have to be more shrewd, more astute in understanding this world in light of the next. The Christian destiny is eternity and eternal glory, an inheritance, a certain future. There's no question, if you will. The only question is, we can't fully grasp the staggering immensity of the inheritance that awaits the children of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that what I'm calling you to do is to bring the destiny of the future to bear upon the actions of the present. To act now in light of then. 
See, somehow there is a disconnect with us between our certain future and our uncertain present. Why don't we live more shrewdly? Perhaps it's because we're focusing on the wrong destiny. We're focusing on the world. I forget the statistic of how many advertisements the average person sees as they walk through their daily life. I don't know if you grew up in a secular school, but the message is being blurted to us. You know what the word secular means, by the way, right? This age, this time. We're focusing on and being allured by the love of the world and what it can give us based on how we act. But the Bible says, do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. It's like we're running a race, but we're not looking for a finish line. We're deviating from our course because of a, a shout here, a picture there. Jesus is saying you must be more shrewd. Reminds me of the story of C.T. Studd. I don't know if you've heard that name. I wish I had the name C.T. Studd. Studd was a cricketer in the 1800s, late 1800s. He was a tremendous cricket player for England. He played on the national team. He played against Australia in that series that would now become called the Ashes. He was a great athlete. He was also quite wealthy. Received the best education, went to Eton, went to Cambridge. His father was converted uh, through a, uh, a revival with George Moody. And Stud, C.T., came to faith as well. But six years into his conversion, after his brother George was taken seriously ill, he was confronted with the question, what is all the fame and flattery when a man comes to face eternity? He realized that, yes, he was a believer, but he wasn't living like it. He said, I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. And so in a bold move, Stud, whose father had died, gave away his inheritance and headed off to Africa to be a missionary. Maybe you've heard this phrase from C.T. Studd's famous poem, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. But I want to read you his entire poem that he penned, the man who gave up all of this fame and fortune for, to live for God's calling on his life. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be last, past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. 
bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for God, Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, O Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy our sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one. And now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus is saying to these disciples and to us, be shrewd. Time is ticking. Now will become then. And this generation is the one that we live in. And so what shall you live for? Yes, I'm a Christian. You may be. But what grips your heart? You may have Jesus Christ. But does he have you? Is it God and his kingdom that is central in your heart? Or this world and its fleeting pleasures? Its simple pursuits? And so we must be shrewd in analyzing our heart. In taking stock of the most valuable things we own. Our time. Our passion. Our money. We're chasing after something. Is it him and his purposes? Or is it the world? It's fame and it's fortune. It's adulation. We must be shrewd, O Christian. This brings me to my second point. We must refocus our ambition. We must be intentional in bringing eternity to bear on the present reality. Jesus said in verse 9, And I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now what does he mean when he says unrighteous wealth? The reality is wealth is not righteous or unrighteous, is it? A piece of money doesn't have a soul. It's a piece of metal or a piece of paper or a boat or a house. It's unrighteous perhaps in its temptation to draw us away. But it doesn't have any life to it. Wealth, by the way, the Greek word mammon, is more than money. He's not simply talking about your physical asset, your dollars, your bank account. He's talking about all of your assets, your influence, your position, your skill set, the gifts that God has given you. He says, make friends with this. Now, he's not talking in terms of like a like a, a psychophant or something like that. Use your money to gain friends. Buy people. No, he's saying use it to impact people. To influence people. To move people. To shape them 
in such a way that they see a picture of God's kingdom. What they do with it, of course, that's up to them. But no, he's saying you've got to use that which is most valuable to impact and influence that which is most valuable to God. You know, there are only two things in the end that will last on the earth. Number one, our labor done in the Lord, our worship and our prayers, and people. All the rest will be burned away and recreated. It is C.S. Lewis that put it this way. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection power, uh, proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. As we walk along life, we're impacting and helping to move in one direction or another. The reality is all of us, the simple of us, the middle school student, even younger than that, the wealthy, the poor, the employer, the employee, all of us have influence. All of us have power. But it does say that when it fails, there's a temporariness to it. My position will eventually go. My stuff will eventually go. My influence might go. The skills that I have, whether in my case to preach or teach or communicate this way, maybe one day I won't have that. Maybe whatever skills you have, they will fail eventually as your strength fades. When it fades, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now make sure to hear this, my friends. This sermon, this passage, is not about salvation by faith. It's not about tit for tat. Look, you pay now and do good things and guess what? People don't welcome you into heavenly dwellings. It's God who does that. It's not salvation by faith, but rather a transformed life that reflects my faith. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats where Jesus separates them and this particular group, come, so proud and happy, come, for you took care of me. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. And they say, when did we do that? Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers, you did for me. See, it's a transformed heart. It's a decision to live for Him that influences everything. Who we marry, how we work, how we think, what we watch, what we read, how we eat. It goes on and on and on. He's saying use what God has given you to love people 
and to worship me. If you have been faithful, not been faithful, verse 11, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own?